We're going to be in John chapter 1, as you just heard read, John 1, 43 through 51. I don't know if you consider yourself a naturally skeptic person, uh, but I think a little bit of healthy skepticism is good for all of us. Um, <clears throat> you know, for example, I think anytime I see uh, the disclaimer as seen on TV uh, in, a, in a commercial or in a store, I'm just naturally skeptical. I'm, I'm just not sure it's going to work. The only thing that I've found uh, able to work, I'm not ashamed to admit, I'm only in my mid-30s, but I saw an advertisement for a pillow once that promised to take away your shoulder pain. Uh, it's the Coop pillow. It truly works. Um, if you want a good pillow, get the Coop pillow. Um, <clears throat> I was so excited. I got it as a gift for Christmas. Um, that's, uh, that's about the peak of life. Everything's going downhill from there. And, uh, and then as a very romantic gift, I bought my wife one because she started to use my pillow. Uh, and, uh, and so not to throw her under the bus, but now we, we both uh, sport the Coop pillow. Uh, other than that, you should be skeptical of what you see on TV. Uh, summer is a good time for road trips, and I don't know if you've ever paid attention uh, on the road trip, the Love's gas station, the, the, the gasoline tankers, you know, that drive down the interstate. They have plastered on them. I, I never, never uh, you know, I never get over it every time I see it. It says, the best coffee on the interstate. Uh, when you see that advertisement on a gasoline tanker for a gas station, you should be naturally skeptical, right? Like it's healthy to be naturally skeptical about some things. Um, you know, we uh, have to go through McDonald's regularly uh, with little kids and they say, have it your way at McDonald's. But you all know at McDonald's, it's have it whatever way we put in your bag, uh, you know, as you go through the drive-through, right? And like there are things that we should be naturally skeptical of. Uh, and, and even when it comes to Jesus today, we're going to see a skepticism that can be healthy uh, when it's open to pursuing the truth about who Jesus is. See, I think it's fair to say that everybody in this life is on a spiritual journey. Uh, we are all somewhere in between the two poles of a perhaps antagonistic, skeptical person to a committed follower. And somewhere in between is this category of, of searching and, and, and seeking the truth. And as we think about that and we look at the Gospel of John today in our passage, verses 43 through 51 in chapter 1, uh, we're going to see someone who goes from being somewhat of a skeptic who's open to being a committed follower of Christ. Uh, and that's Nathaniel and Jesus as they have this conversation uh, in our passage. And so I want us to see three things in this passage. The first, if you look in verses 43 through 45, um, before we get into Jesus and Nathaniel's conversation, we actually see the pattern for discipleship. Uh, this is woven in all of the Gospels. If you look at Jesus calling his disciples to himself, you see discipleship defined in two words. It's simple and yet it's profound. I'm, uh, I'm going to give you the two words, uh, but we're going to unpack the significance of what they mean. Uh, we can see the two words in our passage in verse 43. As Jesus finds Philip, he says to him, follow me. That's the, the, the core definition of discipleship. Follow me. You could put an emphasis on those two words in two different ways, right? Um, follow me or follow me. And they're both important. They're both significant to understand because I think discipleship, as we think about this pattern, discipleship, if you want a, a simple definition, you could describe discipleship in this way. Discipleship is knowing and following Jesus and helping others do the same. Discipleship is knowing 
and following Jesus and helping others do the same. First, we're going to see what it means to know and follow Jesus as Jesus calls Philip to follow him. This comes on the heel of Jesus calling uh, Andrew and Simon Peter to, to follow him in the previous passage. Uh, but we, we see this, this call to follow Jesus uh, throughout all of the Gospels. They repeat the same uh, definition of discipleship. My favorite, though, is in Mark chapter 1, verse 17. When Jesus called the disciples, it, says, uh, it gives us a little bit more in-depth view of this conversation with, uh, with Simon Peter and Andrew as they were fishermen, and Jesus called them. He said, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So discipleship is knowing and following Jesus. And I think that's important for us to say because at the, the forefront, discipleship is first and foremost about a person. Discipleship is first and foremost about Jesus. Do you notice when Jesus calls these disciples to follow him, the first thing he doesn't say uh, is, hey, uh, take up these doctrinal affirmations uh, as my disciples or uh, take upon this ethical code of living as my disciples. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. These things aren't unimportant to Jesus, what we believe and how we live. In fact, Jesus says in John 17, 17, uh, as a prayer to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. He cares about what we believe. The truth is in your word. He cares that his word would change the way we live. He cares about the way that we live, that it would line up with who he is and what he has done. But we don't get doctrine, our beliefs, and ethics the way we live apart from first looking to Jesus, apart from first believing upon and following Jesus. It's, it's all about Jesus. It's, it's the, the core of what Christianity is about. They called the, the, the first Christians little Christ because they were following Christ and their pattern of life was marked by their, their leader, by their Savior. That's who we are at the core. We, we can uh, go back and forth as to what labels are helpful for uh, describing uh, followers of Christ. But at the basis, we, we are following our Savior. It's about Jesus. And here in the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the first few verses, we get the, the clear emphasis on who Jesus is. Look at the beginning of the Gospel of John there in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. John gets straight to the point. He says, Jesus is God. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing was made apart from the Word. Jesus is the Creator. And it not only tells us that He's the Creator, but He not only made the light to shine in the world, but He's the light that comes into the world and shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, verse 5. Jesus is God in the flesh. He came and dwelt among us, it says in verses 9 through, 9 through 18, that he took on flesh. God came down to us. He didn't call us to work our way up to him, but he came to us, and he has revealed to us grace and truth that can only be found in him. It says in verse 14, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 18 says, If you want to know who God is, is and what God looks like. Just look at Jesus because he has revealed the Father. He is one with the Father, fully God, fully man, the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three distinct persons. This is all unpacked right here in the Gospel of John in the first 18 verses. 
And Jesus is saying, follow me. And we're going to see how the disciples, even though the wheels were turning and the the light bulb didn't just click and they got everything in, in an instant, they're beginning to see that Jesus is more than just a prophet. He's more than just a teacher. He's the one promised in the scriptures. And though they didn't quite understand how God was going to bring about his promised redemption, they knew that Jesus was the one. Just like John the Baptist said in summing up his ministry as Jesus approached He said, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is what discipleship is all about. We keep our eyes on him. We pursue him. Follow me is the invitation of discipleship. And not only do we keep our eyes on Jesus, but as we look to Jesus, as we understand who he is, as we, as we begin to see that he gave his life for us so that he might call us to himself, we begin to see that discipleship, this call to know and follow Jesus, is an all-encompassing discipleship. It's an all-encompassing call to follow him. Everything flows out of knowing Jesus. In God's economy, there is no gig economy. Jesus will not be a part-time savior, and he will not allow us to be temp followers. He's calling us to give all of ourselves to him who gave all of himself to us. If you come to Jesus, you get forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. If you come to Jesus, you find grace that we could never earn. If we come to Jesus, we find acceptance and and life that satisfies beyond anything in this life that we could find. When you come to Jesus, you find an ethic that turns upside down everything that the world believes the world says, love your, your friends and your family, um, and at best, be nice to your enemies, but at worst, hate your enemies. Jesus flips it all upside down. And in the Gospel of Luke <clears throat> 6, chapter 6, verse 27, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. How's that for an ethic? When you come to Jesus, he gives us a way of life that's patterned after him and after the way of the cross, which calls us to lay down our lives for the sake of others, just as Christ has laid down his life for us. If we come to Jesus, we get a a holiness and and a purity, a call to holiness that isn't motivated by shame and guilt. It's, it's not motivated by uh, being told how bad we are or guilting us into doing something that we don't want. But the call to holiness when we come to Jesus is, is motivated by an acceptance from Jesus, a welcome by Jesus into his family. It, it's, you see it in the adulterous woman in John chapter 8 when, when all the religious leaders came with stones to kill her. Jesus said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And then he looked at her and he said, I don't hold your sins against you. I forgive you. And here it is. Go and sin no more. Not shame and guilt that motivated her call to holiness, that motivates our call to holiness, but a welcome embrace that comes with the forgiveness of God's grace. And he invites us to then give ourselves fully to him. This is what it means to know and follow Jesus. I, I think sometimes as, as I, I think about uh, what we, uh, I feel like, have reduced Christianity to, uh, that, that we can, um, we can uh, in, in many ways, dull the call to follow Jesus. We, we, we look at this idea of following Jesus and it seems like an imposition upon our lives. It seems like extra stuff that maybe we need to do 
or things that we can't do that keep us from some desire that we have. And as I look at Jesus's call to follow him without qualification, without any hesitation, he invites us to follow him because he's the best thing that we could ever have. No one will love us like him. No one will accept us like him. You think about that. He knows everything about you. We're, we're going to see in his interaction with Nathaniel that God has supernatural knowledge. He knew Nathaniel was under the tree before Philip called him. That rocked Philip, that rocked Nathaniel's world. It ought to rock ours that he, he knew where we were at before he called us. And yet he called us to himself. That's grace. That's love to be fully known and yet fully accepted. As I said, I think when we think about this call to follow Christ, perhaps if you're one who's like Nathaniel in a minute, as we'll see, you may feel like the call is, uh, is a little much or over the top, maybe overbearing. And, and I'm reminded as we look at the disciples, one of the encouraging things, um, if this resonates with any of you, but as we look at the disciples throughout the Gospels, it wasn't like they got it in an instant, right? Um, uh, and in fact, I think it's one of the reasons we can trust God's word to us because it doesn't present a sanitized view of the disciples as if they always did what they, sh- they should do and always said what they should say, the right thing that they should say. In fact, it shows us that God doesn't call perfect disciples. He calls sinners and he promises to transform them. Follow me, he said, and I will make you become. The, the become implies transformation. The become implies change. Discipleship is an all-encompassing call. It's obedience and response to God's grace. This is what it means to know and follow Jesus. But it never fails as I, as I have conversations about what it means to know and follow Jesus. As people think about committing their lives to Christ, there's, there's always this fear. And I, I feel like on some level, all of us have this in our hearts in which we say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm afraid I'm going to fail. Yes, I want to follow Jesus, but maybe there are some things that I'm finding hard to let go. Maybe you've been following Christ for a while, and there's stuff in your life that doesn't seem as easy to let go as you thought it would be. Maybe you're discouraged that some of the desires of your heart and the actions in your life don't quite reflect what you think they should reflect. And we're reminded in Jesus' call to follow him that discipleship doesn't ultimately rest on our ability to follow Jesus. Hear me. It doesn't ultimately rest on our ability to follow Jesus. It ultimately rests on the sufficiency of Jesus to sustain us as we follow him. Oh yes, he will will empower us to walk in obedience by the power of his spirit, by the grace that he provides. But it's not ultimately about our ability, it's ultimately about his sufficiency. So discipleship is about knowing and following Jesus, but then we see... In this call, as Jesus calls Philip to follow me, we see the next part, that disciples don't just know and follow Jesus unto themselves, right? We're just saying, God, I'm building my life upon you, but lead me to those around me to show them your love. So discipleship is knowing and following Jesus and then helping others do the same. It's not a program. It's not a seven-week study that you take people through. Discipleship is living your life for Christ, knowing and following him, and then looking around at the people that God has put around you and said, hey, come and see Jesus. Come and follow me. 
You see, Jesus intends to make us into people who help others know and follow him. Look at what it says in verse 44. It says, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Most likely, Andrew and Peter are maybe were born in Galilee, but now have taken up residence, or were from Bethsaida, excuse me, but were working in Galilee, as you'll see in the other Gospels. But nonetheless, they go there, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. See, Jesus found Philip, and he called him to follow him. And then Philip found Nathanael, and he said, We found Jesus. Come and follow him with us. It sounds simplistic, right? I know there's a lot more that goes in uh, to uh, what it means to go and find your friend and invite them to follow Jesus. But I'm just encouraged by the reminder, at the core, what Jesus is calling us to be is people who know him, who believe in him, who believe what his word says about who he is and what he's done. And then we say, God, you have my life. I'm yours as imperfect as I am. I want to follow you. And then we believe that God doesn't get our address wrong, that he puts the people around us that he's put around us, and we say, God, help me to help these follow you. And that's exactly what Philip did. Philip goes to his friend, and he says, we found him. We found Jesus. If you look in verses 35 through 42, we see the same type of interaction. First, Andrew, as he's one of the disciples of John the Baptist, he hears what John says about Jesus, and, um, and Jesus ultimately is going to call him to follow him. And then it says that Andrew goes and gets Simon Peter's, uh, who is Simon's Peter brother. He goes and gets Simon Peter, and he says, We found the Messiah. Come, let's follow him. The call of Jesus is is to know and follow him and help others do the same. And we're reminded in all of this, if you maybe hear that call to, to help others find him, and you go, how in the world am I going to do that? I don't, feel gift, I don't feel gifted to do that. I don't feel equipped to do that. Did you notice that the, the found language was um, used multiple times in our passage? Jesus found Philip. Then Philip found Nathaniel. And then Philip says, we found Jesus. You see, we, we learned that ultimately, if you've found Jesus, if you've come to know him and follow him, you didn't first find him. He first found you. And when you think about what it means for God to use you to help others find him, you begin to realize that if people are searching for Jesus, Jesus is already seeking them. Jesus is already pursuing them. He goes before us. He is with us. He goes after us. He's the one who seeks and finds people, and he calls us to be an instrument in his hand. God expects us to be people who help others find him. I was talking with um, Emily this week. She had a doctor's appointment, and um, we've i gotten to know uh, our doctor pretty well uh, over our first three years here as we've had three children since we've lived in Michigan uh, or will have three children uh, in August, Lord willing. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> they were talking small talk as they often do. And uh, her doctor said, How, were, were we talking about uh, the Lazy Genius uh, uh, Instagram? Um, <clears throat> and 
Uh, I don't think she was the one that Emily had talked to her about, but Emily knows Lazy Genius. I've, I've heard uh, some Lazy Genius quotes and uh, techniques for uh, living. If you, uh, if you know what I'm talking about, you, uh, you, you might uh, find this uh, interesting. But her doctor says, you know, I've become uh, somewhat of a Lazy Genius evangelist these days. I just think she's wonderful. Um, and they went on to talk about some life hack for, you know, how to make meals in a simple way or uh, something that makes your life easier and better. Um, I like to think I'm a lazy genius as well. Uh, I just haven't gotten around to, you know, setting up an Instagram account uh, for people to know about it. But uh, nonetheless, uh, lazy genius is a great, great resource if you, you know, if you need some help in life, look her, look her up. But we were, we were talking about this, and we just kind of laughed, and we said, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be simple if that's just how all of our evangelism was. Hey, if I told you about Jesus, I've become somewhat of a Jesus evangelist these days. I think he's wonderful. It's, it's cliche, I know. That's like the classic Jesus juke um, to, to say, uh, you know, have I told you about Jesus? Uh, but I, this isn't original to me, but I've heard it said that we talk about what we love and we talk about what works. I've already shown you that I've, uh, I'm an evangelist for the coop pillow, I'm, a, I'm an evangelist for uh, good Ethiopian coffee, single source, you know, naturally dried Ethiopian coffee, uh, wonderful, uh, not the Love's gas station coffee. All those things are good. <clears throat> uh, we talk about what we love. We talk about what we know that works. I think Jesus should fit into both of those categories, right? Do you love him? I mean, how could we not? He first loved us. He pursued us. He not only provided for our salvation, but he comforts us throughout this life and strengthens us in our moments of weakness and need. Has Jesus changed you? Have you ever experienced the, the desires for sin weakening in your life as you get closer to him? His word becoming more real, obedience becoming more normal, affections for him growing stronger. You see, we, if we talk about what we love and we talk about what works, Jesus should be on our lips. Not because we have to, but how can we not? <clears throat> so this is the call. The pattern of discipleship is to know him and follow him and then to help others do the same. But that's not all that we see in the passage. We also see the danger and the opportunity of skepticism. The danger and the opportunity of skepticism. Look now at Jesus' interaction, um, both before he comes to talk to Nathaniel and then uh, as he talks to him. <clears throat> uh, Philip's gone to him and said, We found Jesus, the one whom the, the prophets and Moses talked about. And then Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip <clears throat> said to him, Come and see. Jesus then, it says, saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, whom there is no deceit. And then Nathanael said, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him and said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You see, in this interaction, I think we see the danger and the opportunity of skepticism. Let me unpack what I mean by that. We see the danger in Nathanael's question. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? His his doubt about the Messiah coming from Nazareth, in one sense, is well-grounded, right? The, the, the scriptures say that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem, 
Of course, we know that Jesus and the providence of God had to go to Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because of the Uh, because of the census, and Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem as a fulfillment of the Scriptures. But then Jesus returns to Nazareth and grows up in Nazareth, and Nazareth is a a no-name type place. It's, uh, as one commentator said, the equivalent to nowhere. It's a backwoods, small, maybe 2,000 people at this time, uh, little countryside town. And Nathaniel is skeptical of Nazareth, and he says, what good can come from Nazareth? It wouldn't be unlike East Lansing or Columbus, right? Uh, the equivalent of a nowhere place. What good can come from there? If you're tracking, you're tracking, right? Um, he, he, he's doubtful about Jesus coming from Nazareth and being the Messiah, but it's more, I think, than just a... Um, kind of a, a sound biblical reasoning. There's, I think there's a, a sense of, of prejudice that's revealed uh, in uh, Nathaniel's response. It's not the Messiah can't come from Nazareth. It's can anything good come from Nazareth? There's this, this doubt of anything good even coming from Nazareth, a dismissal out of hand. No, I'm not even going to consider it. There's nothing good that could come from there. Here in a minute, we'll see why that's a danger of skepticism. But I, I, I want to point out how Philip responds. You see, if I were Philip, I would be tempted to break out some apologetics. I would be like, well, you know, Nathaniel, you know, I know the Bible you know, says Bethlehem and under the Quirinius, the census, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but then he went to Nazareth. And this reveals the power of God that he uses the small things in the world to make, you know, like you could unpack all of that. And I'm not saying that it would be wrong to do that. Apologetics is vital to defending the faith and articulating the faith. But Philip doesn't give a defense Philip gives an invitation. He says, come and see. And I think in our day and age, when people have information readily available at their fingertips, no doubt some of that information isn't good and isn't helpful. Just Google a question and you'll realize you shouldn't, you'd all know this, but you shouldn't trust everything that you read on the internet, right? Um, But nonetheless, people can find out just about anything that they want. But here's here's what everybody wants but is lacking, Everybody wants to be personally invited into something. Oh, we have access to the information. But like Philip, we should personally invite people to come and see. I love that reminder. It might be a conversation on the back porch. It might be coffee during the week. It might be an invitation to read the Bible together at the playground. It might be a, hey, I would love for you to join me at church. We're talking about something I think you would find interesting. Or let's get lunch this week and talk about these questions. This is the kind of personal invitation that no doubt is costly to us as we seek to help others follow Jesus, but is vital uh, to this call. And the kind of skepticism that we see here is the, the danger, I think, is when we have a skepticism that dismisses out of hand. It's a, a dismissive uh, attitude that, that just says, I'm not even going to consider it. What good can come from Nazareth? I don't want to even hear it. I don't know if you found yourself here. Maybe, you, maybe you've been here before. Maybe there was something that happened in your life that changed your, your perspective like it did to Nathaniel. But there is a, a kind of view of Christianity. Uh, there's a, <clears throat> um, a book talking about engagement, uh, encounters with Jesus that Tim Keller wrote that in reference to Nathaniel, he says that people today view Christianity as Nathaniel did Nazareth. What good can come from Christianity? I've been there. I've tried that. I I grew up with that. I've seen what it's all about. I'm not interested in that. 
You ask somebody what their view of Jesus is, and they may have a positive assessment of Jesus, but they want nothing to do with actually following Jesus. It's just a dismissive attitude. They're, the way uh, Keller unpacks this, I thought was helpful. He says, as, as it relates to dismissiveness, it can destroy uh, all creativity, all wisdom. It, it can destroy relationships. If you're in your marriage, you can handle disappointments, you can handle heartache, you can handle disagreements. But when there is dismissiveness of one another, your relationship's in danger. Even in a more concrete, less uh, relational way, when you're—I don't know if you ever lost your keys. Apparently, Apple now has a little thing you can put on your keys that you can find it. Um, And I already think that they could do that. I already get advertisements telling me that somehow they can find me and listen to me wherever you are. We will find you. Whatever you're interested in, we will get you an advertisement for. Uh, But nonetheless, when you're searching for your keys, what do you do? You always rule out where you think your keys can't be. Oh, I couldn't have left them in the car. I know that I brought them in. So you look everywhere in the house. But then at the very end, you're like, well, I guess I'll go look in the car. And where are they? Right in the console of the car, right? Uh, we, We dismiss it out of hand, and then it actually ends up being the place where it was all along. People do that with Jesus. They say, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in Christianity. In either scenario, a dismissal out of hand of Christianity or Jesus can be dangerous. There's nothing more fatal, uh, Keller says, to wisdom and good relationships than rejecting certain ideas or people out of hand. Now, uh, we see that Jesus doesn't, as he interacts with with Nathaniel, he doesn't just take his, his skepticism that's stated at face value. He actually, we see Nathanael's question, but Jesus' perception, when he sees Nathanael, he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Basically, Jesus says that Nathanael is an honest man. He might be blunt, but at least he's honest, and and he's willing, uh, as we see when Philip invites him to come and see, he indeed goes and sees Jesus. He's willing to consider Jesus. And I think here's here's the point. Uh, an opportunity, the opportunity of skepticism is that when skepticism drives us to honestly pursue the truth. You see, skepticism, we can dismiss certain ideas, even people like Jesus out of hand, but the opportunity of skepticism is when we allow it to push us into inquiry, into looking into, into considering for ourselves. When people say they're not interested in Jesus, they're not even willing to entertain the thought. Perhaps there in that moment we see how how averse we may be to actual free thought, right? That we pride ourselves in being a people that value free thought, and yet we dismiss certain ideas out of hand. In the same way as Christians, as you interact with others, you should listen to what they care about. You should listen to the questions they have and to their thoughts and beliefs. We shouldn't dismiss out of hand. Instead, we should honestly pursue the truth. And that's the opportunity of skepticism. And in light of this response, as Jesus says, you're a man with whom there is no deceit. Not that there's no wrong, but just that you're an honest man in your, in your thought and in your critique. Nathaniel asks the natural question, how do you know me? And here Jesus reveals supernatural knowledge of Nathaniel. He says, I saw you before Philip called you. And as I read this the first time, I was like, man, that was easy. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to share the gospel with someone. You can kind of get worked up, and you try to share, and then it doesn't go like, like the way that you thought. Jesus just says one thing, and he was like, all right, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God and the King of Israel. Bam. 
But, but I think it's this combination of Philip's invitation and, and Jesus' display of his supernatural knowledge that, that Nathaniel, being willing to consider the truth, he changes his mind on the spot. Now, I think it's fair to say that sometimes uh, Christianity's critiqued for being anti-intellectual, not being willing to think this idea that it's just a blind leap into the dark. I don't think that's an accurate representation, but at times uh, it has been lodged against Christianity. And it's interesting to me uh, when, when Nathaniel responds, he says, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. Those titles are messianic titles, references uh, to the promised Messiah. Jesus is kind of surprised. He says in verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Jesus actually says, he doesn't commend him for just believing blindly. He actually says, you might you might even want to consider a little bit more who I am. He doesn't <clears throat> commend not thinking. He actually commends thinking more. And that's, in fact, where we, we conclude. We see the pattern of discipleship, the danger and opportunity of skepticism. But then to conclude, we see the greatness of Jesus. And that's what Jesus calls every skeptic to, to consider. To look at me, he says. Consider me. He says, you believe because I said I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than these. He says at the end of verse 50 and verse 51, truly, truly, a statement that demands our attention. I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. Here in a minute, we'll return to this reference to Jacob and the vision that he has at Bethel in the Old Testament in Genesis 28. But to, to kind of step back, when we think about the greatness of Jesus, he says in verse 50, you'll see greater things than these. I, I want to encourage us, when we think about where to look to find the greatness of Jesus, the first place we should look is that we should look in the Bible because the greatness of Jesus is revealed in the Bible. Philip went to Nathaniel and he said, we found the one whom Moses and the prophets spoke about. Come and let us show you him. See, this statement, the one that Moses and the prophets spoke about, is a, is a way to summarize the Old Testament. Jesus did this in Luke 24, if you go and look. In, in John chapter 5, Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and, and he critiques them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. See, Nathaniel knew the scriptures, what the scriptures said about the Messiah. That's why he didn't think the Messiah could come from Nazareth. They were looking to the scriptures to find the truth about Jesus. And what we find, just like we, we talked about in our Backyard Bible Club, as we seek truth, we'll find Jesus. As we look into the Old Testament, we'll find the promises about Jesus. And, and as Jesus a, a, arises, as Jesus a, a comes in the, in the Gospels, we find out that Jesus comes as he was promised. But he's a Savior and a Redeemer that's far greater than we thought. He doesn't come and conquer the Romans he comes and conquers sin by laying down his life for us. Jesus' greatness is revealed in the Bible. The, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are about him. The Bible isn't merely a fact book. It's not Aesop's fables. As we read the Bible, we see Jesus. As I preach the Bible, my, my goal and my desire as I would hold it up is that you would see the great and mighty works of God that come true and are fulfilled in Jesus He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the assurance of our hope. The greatness of Jesus is revealed in the Bible, but I think the greater things that Jesus is talking about in verse 50, yes, they're, they're spoken of in the Bible, 
Uh, But ultimately, the greater things that he's speaking about are going to be revealed in his death and his resurrection. You see, we've, we've already seen somewhat of a reference to Jacob when Jesus referred to Nathanael as one who was without deceit. A true Israelite, one without deceit, uh, an, a, a Jewish person wouldn't, uh, wouldn't take too much to think about Jacob, who was a deceiver. Uh, if you remember that story in, in Genesis, he, he was a schemer and a deceiver. And having a little boy, I can see how that was naturally the case. Um, just always, always scheming and deceiving and trying to get at his older brother. And, uh, and on one hand, we're reminded that God can use anyone. Uh, he can call anyone to follow him. Uh, and, and yet, he, he comes at the end to, to, to speak of this vision that Jacob had, of these angels descending and ascending on this ladder at this place called Bethel. Jacob's on the run from his brother, and, and it's there that he encounters God, and God changes him and calls him to himself as the true Israel. And what we see in, uh, in Jesus is that he is the fulfillment of what Jacob saw. He's the fulfillment of the true Israel. Um, <clears throat> Jesus said, let the little children come. They're, they're fine to come, right? Um, <clears throat> and so <clears throat> when we think about these greater things in this vision, the vision of heaven being opened up, the angels ascending and descending, what we see here is, is this vision in Genesis 28. Jesus is saying, I'm the place where God's glory is revealed. The glory of heaven is revealed on earth. Heaven and earth collide. The Son of Man is a title used in Ezekiel in reference to the humanity of a person. But in Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14, it's used in reference to the deity of the Ancient of Days who's going to come and bring judgment at the end of time. Jesus, he avoids the political titles like Messiah, and he uses this reference, Son of Man, and he fills it out to show us what kind of Messiah he was. The Jews were expecting the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah who is going to come and conquer by laying down his life. And that's ultimately the greater works, I think, that Jesus is speaking of that will be revealed in his death and his resurrection. And in fact, in John chapter 8, 28, Jesus says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. I couldn't help but think of it this, this week as I looked at this passage. Nathaniel believes because Jesus displayed a supernatural knowledge. How much more should we believe today that Jesus has displayed his sacrificial love for us? The glory of heaven was revealed on earth when Jesus took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life of obedience to God the Father, died a sacrificial death in our place and for our sin and rose victorious from the dead. He not only displayed sacrificial love, he displays divine power in rising from the dead. There is no sin. There is no accusation of the devil, no condemnation of hell itself that could stand against those who put their faith in Christ. Jesus says, "Come." Philip invites Nathaniel to come and see the truth about Jesus. And the invitation to us today is to consider for ourselves the greatness of Jesus, revealed in his word and revealed in his death and his resurrection. Jesus has shown us that discipleship is knowing and following him and helping others do the same. I I think in many ways, all of us today are either Philip or Nathaniel. We're either Philip in that we once didn't believe, but we've come to believe and follow Jesus. And God is is calling us to invite those around us to come and see.
Or maybe we're Nathaniel, who in our skepticism is willing to seek out the truth about Jesus. In either scenario, the invitation is the same. Come and see. And once you've seen Jesus and you believe in him, he invites you into the life that, that we could never imagine and that's far greater than what we expect, the life of following him. Here in just a minute, our band is going to come and we're going to sing a, a closing song that boasts in Christ. The final verse of the song says, Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Here's, here's the profession of those who follow Jesus. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you would choose. And let my song forever be. My only boast is you. As we sing that song, I pray today that that would be your confession. That your confession would be today, God, I follow you. I see Jesus for who he is and I follow him. Maybe God would renew you and your call to pursue others so that you might invite them to follow Jesus too. We've said all along, a conversation with Jesus can change our life. It changed Nathaniel's life. And as we look at these conversations that Jesus has, we, we actually see more and more about who he is. We get to consider the greatness of Jesus. But we're also reminded that our conversation with somebody else about Jesus might change their life. He's calling us to know and follow him. And he's calling us to help others do the same. Bow your heads with me and we'll close in prayer.